Counter the latest internet sensation. If it's happening in Melbourne, Seb Costello all over it. I am so excited. Then we thought to ourselves, well, let's have some fun with this. Look, I have great respect for the press. Nice dress, by the way. Is that an Ivanka? That's my favourite team. Good morning, Seb, and good morning, Gordon. You're listening. Weekend Breakfast with Seb Costello on Triple M. Good morning. Happy Saturday. The weekend breakfast is back for another week with bells on, to use an awful cliche. Luke Beveridge, the coach of the Western Bulldogs, to join us a bit later in the program, as well as Andrew Westercott, the CEO of the Grand Prix Corporation, after reports that the ratings around the world for F1 are on the slide. So the gang's all here, including the great Peter Hitchener. <laughs> You're funny. Thank you very much. I could listen to that all day. But I want to talk cricket in a moment, and I don't think the Australians covered themselves in glory. If you think I'm saying we cheated, well... You're missing my point, mate. Because that's not what I'm saying. But it didn't come off well when you see Steve Smith look up to the player's box and have the umpire charging through with his finger in the air. The ICC has ruled that no rules were broken, so any suggestion of cheating are flat out wrong. But, gee, that test has been entertaining. I have been loving watching Australia and India just go at each other in that series. It sits one apiece. And up next, we're going to cross to Bangalore where the last test just wound up, Indians winning by 75 runs. But we've got two tests to go in that series. And I want to find out if it is as big in India as it has been here, because everybody has been talking about that test match. This is the Weekend Breakfast. Let's get into it on another Saturday morning on Triple M. The last test in India was hotter than Matt Renshaw's lunch in Pune. The tensions were flaring. We watched every session, and a man who was lucky enough to see it in person is gun cricket writer for The Guardian and broadcaster for the ABC, Adam Collins. He joins us from Bangalore. Come in, mate. G'day, Seb. How are you? Oh, mate. Well, I'm jealous of you to be over there. It's been extraordinary. But just to set the scene, that test ends with Virat Kohli all but accusing Australia of cheating because Steve Smith looked up to the box after he had an LBW call to see whether he was going to take a DRS. In the end, the ICC cleared Australia of cheating. How's that going down in India? It's quite parochial, and you can kind of understand how this, these sort of things play out. I'd imagine if the boot were on the other foot, we'd see pieces exactly the same way. But... The Indian media are inclined, I think, to back Virat fairly heavily in. And even though the claim that he's made hasn't really been able to be substantiated, I think Smith handled it particularly well, though. He copped the, copped the wax straight away. I think sometimes that device of simply saying that he stuffed up worked really well. And, and likewise, Peter Hanscom saying that he just didn't know the rules. And you can understand that as well. Peter Hanscom's a veteran of but six tests. I mean, you know, maybe common sense should have kicked in at some stage for him there. But he was the one that provoked Smith to look up to the rooms as well. So... I mean, the idea that Brad Coley uh, thinks it's systematic, he'd have to provide some proof. It's akin to Donald Trump saying that Barack Obama was tapping his wife <laughs> before the last election. Like, unless you can prove it, you've got the tinfoil hat on and you look, you look like an idiot. And I think in many respects, unless Brad can find a way of substantiating his claims, he's going to look a, look a bit foolish, I think. Mate, take us inside that stadium. We know cricket is massive in India. We see it on the TV with the fences up because these fans are, are so passionate. What's the atmosphere like? That, that was uh, the best thing about this, this particular test is that it was at Chinnaswamy, which is a proper cricket ground. It, it reminded me a lot of VFL Park in the old days with the huge light towers like from the 80s and like the way you had to navigate the way around the ground. It was like little rabbit warrens everywhere, the coloured seating. It was just everything you could want and lots of people came uh, from the local crowd, which wasn't the case in Pune. So that was a massive advance as well. And they made so much noise, Brat, to his credit, encouraging the crowd at every moment. And it just created a pulsating atmosphere, particularly the second morning. And it really 
continued the flavour through day three and four as well when they were sort of fighting their way back into the test match. Um, the level of noise and, and, and the atmosphere that was created was really akin to anything I've seen in sport. And I've been pretty lucky to see some pretty cool things over the years. This was right up there. It was, was one of the most um, gripping um, contests uh, I've seen in, in cricket and, and sort of reflected in the way that it's been written about as one of the best test matches of the modern era, even though it was a low-scoring affair. Um, it didn't really matter. I think it showed that we have a, you know, a, a mature enough palette as, as cricket watchers to be able to enjoy a, a shootout with a massive scores in T20, but also really appreciate a grind like this as well. Talking to Adam Collins, cricket writer for The Guardian and broadcaster for the ABC. He's in Bangalore where that test has just finished. And, mate, you probably get a feel for the Australian appetite for this series now with all that's been going on. We are absolutely gripped by it and watch just about every session this week. What about locally there? Are they as into it? Is it saturating the media in India? It is, but you've got to remember it's a different kind of environment where in Australia, test cricket is the pinnacle and that's unlikely to be surpassed any time soon. The culture is different here. T20 cricket and the IPL in particular is clearly their number one sport. So whilst it is dominating coverage and there's definitely a huge amount of interest in what's going on, it probably isn't saturated to the extent that it would be if the boot were on the other foot in this series were in Australia. Very so, interesting. Um, it's worth keeping that perspective. But the crowds in, at Chinnaswamy were very encouraging. The next test match, we're going to Ranchi. It's never held a test match before. Uh, it's the home ground of MS Dhoni. So he's a bit of a god in that part of the country. So, and they, you know, I think that's a, a large part of the reason why they're getting a test match is the Dhoni relationship as well. So, I think that in terms of, you know, the venues we've got to come, uh, Ranchi fired by Durham Charlotte, also never held a test match before. They'll have every incentive to get along because um, this is shaping up as, again, one of the, the best series we've seen in many years. It stands at one apiece with two tests to play. Mate, thanks for talking to us. Uh, watch out for the curries that Matt Renshaw's been eating too. Yeah, I will. I'll stay with. Well clear of that. Uh, the local tucker's great, but I don't want to get the runs like him. That was, that was dreadful. <laughs> Adam Collins from The Guardian and the ABC in India bringing us up to speed with that fascinating series. Andrew Bogut, your heart just goes out to the bloke. This was set to be a great Australian sporting story. you got a number one draft pick, amazing basketball talent, who eventually wins a championship in the NBA with the Golden State Warriors against the Cleveland Cavaliers. The next year, the same two teams meet in the finals. This time, the Cavaliers beat the Warriors. Bogut then gets cut by the Warriors and is sent out to the wastelands of Dallas where they never play him. Well then, at the start of last week, in a full circle turnaround, Andrew Bogut was recruited by Cleveland. So now this thing was going to come full circle and with the Cavs heading back to the playoffs in the NBA, maybe he was going to win another ring with the team he beat in the first place. Sadly, it was not to be. 58 seconds into his first game with the Cavs, he snaps his tibia. So loud, so graphic, that LeBron James, the greatest player in the world, and the captain of Cleveland, well, he could hear it from where he was standing on the court. Uh, it's, it's very deflating, you know, and uh, it's, a, it's a tough uh, tough moment. You know, we all were excited, you know, about the acquisition and bringing him here and, you know, him getting, him getting some games under his belt, you know, before the playoffs, so... You know, hopefully we can uh, hope for the best, you know, when he gets the MRI or whatever the case may be. But uh, it's, it's, a tough, uh, it's a tough one, not only, obviously, for him, first of all, you know, and then for the, for the for our ball club. I heard it break. As soon as, he, as soon as when the collision happened, I heard it break. And, uh, and when I went over to him and he said it, I had already knew. I, already, I heard it. I heard it crack. 
LeBron James there. Of course, Bogut has had graphic injuries in the past that has gotten in the way of his career. And eventually, the Cavaliers released a statement. They said Andrew Bogut fractured his left tibia. He will not be available to play the remainder of the regular season and the playoffs. Terribly sad story. And we certainly wish Andrew and his family all the very best at this time. A great warrior for the Boomers, Andrew Bogut, and deserves our support. Suncorp Super Netball is back. It is such an exciting product. I have to say that because I'm a commentator, but it's worth watching. Nine gem tonight. You'll see the Melbourne Vixens taking on the West Coast Fever. It'll be a big game, and the skipper of the Vixens joins us. G'day, Kate Maloney. Hey, Seth. Thanks for having me. Mate, always a pleasure. I want to take you back a week. There was a doubleheader at Hisense. The Magpies took on the Giants, and then it was you guys and the Swifts. But the Magpies tried to bribe everybody in the stadium by putting a black and white T-shirt on every chair in the place to make the Magpie supporters. What sort of dirty trick was that? Yeah, I don't know. I remember we walked in on the Friday before the game and the whole stadium was black. And <laughs> we were like, what's going on here? This is our court. Um, but no, they yeah, they did well there. I think everyone likes free stuff and I'm sure all the young kids would have definitely got around the T-shirt. I have to say, this is apropos of nothing. I think you guys should do the same thing because personally, I reckon the Vixens have just about the coolest sporting colours of any franchise in the country. Yeah, I think we definitely have the best uniform in, in the in the competition. Um, and I think if we put some T-shirts on the seats, there'd definitely be more uh, navy out there, which is nice. Yeah, absolutely. So the season is this. You beat the Magpies first up. You've had a loss and a draw last weekend, 59 goals apiece against the New South Wales Swifts. And you sit fifth. What's the actual target for this year? Finals? Yeah, definitely. I know. think for us, the goal going into the season is that we believe that if we put our best game out each week, then we can beat anyone. And so for us, it's, first of all, it's making those finals and then going from there. It's been an exciting season so far, and we're only a couple of weeks in. I'm just so proud of everybody involved in Suncorp Super Netball this year, particularly you guys, the players, because the athleticism on display has been enormous. But, mate, I want to sort of park netball for a moment and get to know you a bit better, because I understand uh, you had some ambitions at one point to go into teaching, and, and you spent some time working at the Parkville Youth Detention Centre. Is that right? Yeah, I did. So I spent about 12 months working at the... Um, Parkville Juvenile Detention Centre, um, working with the kids in there, so mainly around education support, so going in, playing sport with them, or you know what, just hanging out with them, whatever really they wanted to do and, and having a chat and stuff like that. So um, for me, it was one of probably the hardest things I've ever had to do, yeah. but it was probably one of the most rewarding things I've ever done as well. Did you feel like you were able to connect? I mean, what, what we read is, you know, things are pretty tough in there. You see the, the vision of riots and all that sort of thing. But did you find as somebody who's probably more their peer than, than some of the some of the staff or the guards, whatever you call them, were, were you able to connect with them? Yeah, and I think that was the great thing with me was I really was able to build relationships with a lot of the clients in there. And for me, it was mainly working with the girls uh, and with some of the younger boys as well. But um, yeah, I found it really re rewarding and I felt that the girls got a lot out of it too. And it wasn't only maybe about a month or two ago that I took about um, six of the Vixens girls in and uh, we went and just played a netball game against them and to see them smiling and having fun and playing a full game of netball was amazing for all of us that went in. It must be moving to work in that environment where, you know, unfortunately, you know, I'm sure there's a bit of personal responsibility in it. I'm sure there's some factors that are beyond these kids' control, but for one way or the other, they find themselves in a position where, you know, basically life isn't going down the right path. How do you, how do you cope in that environment? 
Yeah, and I think for me, you sort of realise too how lucky mm. I am to have been given the opportunities to play sport mm. um, from a young age. And for a lot of these kids, they weren't given that opportunity, um, you know, to be involved in a netball club or to be involved in a football club. And I think that goes a long way as well in, you know, you do learn a lot from sport. And um, yeah, I really realised how lucky I was to have been given those opportunities too. It's an amazing thing to do. Good on you for doing it. We're talking to Kate Maloney, the captain of the Melbourne Vixens, who take on the West Coast Fever tonight at High Sense Arena. Get down there or watch it on Nine Gem because the Fever haven't been going too well. So hopefully we can bank a W tonight, the Vixens. <laughs> they haven't had the best start to the season, but they've got some great players in that team, and mm. we know that they're going to come out firing tonight. And uh, we're going to have to really put out a big performance and put out some free T-shirts just to make sure the crowd <laughs> has the right colours on. <laughs> Oh, we don't need to bribe anyone. <laughs> We've Kate, got the support. That's it. Oh, absolutely. Kate Maloney, skipper of the Vixens. We look forward to the match tonight. Good luck. As I said, nine gem. I'll be calling it with Liz Ellis down there on that channel. High Sense Arena, if you can make it down. Always good to have you on Triple M. Thanks. See you tonight. And we're talking about cars right now because the CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation joins us in studio, Andrew Westercott. Good morning. G'day, Seb. There will be Red Bulls. There will be Red Bulls, though, and lots of it, and they'll be fast this year. Exactly. Well, we hope Daniel Ricciardo is especially fast in his. Sure is. You know, um, coming coming to the end of the second set of uh, testing in Catalonia, and in the next stop, Melbourne, for the season opener, 20, uh, 23 to 26 of March. So we're really excited. Driving through the Albert Park circuit, it is moving from a park to a Formula One circuit rapidly. I love going down there. I play basketball at uh, MSAC on a Sunday night. Perfect. And so you go down there on a Sunday and in the weeks leading up to the Grand Prix, all the little bits and bobs are moved in. So every week you go, it's a little bit closer to Grand Prix weekend. It sure is. You know, you've got the Olympians, Morgan Mitchell and the guys at, uh, and girls at VIS and Mac Horton swimming over at MSAC. And every time everyone's going to their sports training, where you're, whether you're an Olympian, Olympian or whether you're just going to Auskick training or something like that, you see the park coming to life as a Formula One circuit and uh, Melbourne's going to be on show. So we're pretty excited. It's fantastic. Now, mate, there's always a few negative Nellies who roll in around Grand Prix weekend. And the reports this year is that the TV audience is slipping, that it's been going downhill for the last three years and that they've lost 137 million viewers worldwide, Formula One, since 2010. Does that stuff worry you? Do you know what it didn't say? The 137 million digital viewers um, on there's there's digital t- there's sorry um, pay TV, but also the the thing that that report shows, and this is we're talking about a Formula One report that comes out, is just TV. It's for the TV networks to look at what they're going to pay for the TV rights around the world. This is all about the digital revolution and the new guys who are taking over Formula One, the Americans from Liberty Media. They are all about digital, about Formula One brand and the fan experience. So they shouldn't be of any concern other than the fact that this is going to be broadened and we're the first race and we're very excited. Because audiences are diverse these days. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I see that at Channel 9 with the news. You know, yep. the, the total number of audiences is probably smaller on traditional television, but the online, the Facebook, the Twitter, all this sort of stuff is going bananas. It is. And the thing about being first race for Melbourne is that every time they talk about the season for the following 19 races all the way up to the culmination in Abu Dhabi, it's always about the season started in Melbourne. There's stuff in print, there's stuff in magazines, there's stuff on aeroplanes, there's stuff online all the time. And what they're doing now and freeing it up from an Instagram, Facebook and Twitter point of view with the drivers, 
only benefits Melbourne and the rest of the season. We're talking to the CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation, Andrew Westercott. And, mate, you mentioned the change in ownership, Liberty Media, a US company taking over Formula One. Bernie Eccleston sort of being moved out a little bit to a ceremonial role as part <laughs> sort of, of Sort of, Jiggy, being polite. <laughs> I, think, I think Bernie actually used the word, said, I've been deposed. <laughs> and he, he said his title has been given as Emeritus Chairman. Yes. Which means retired chairman. Retired, like, exactly. Like a professor. <laughs> You'll be a, you'll be an emeritus uh, broadcaster one of these days, won't you? I can only hope so. But uh, well, and the reason he had to be deposed is because he has ruled that sport with an iron fist, to use a terrible cliche. And mate, look, his relationship, particularly with the former chairman of the Grand Prix Corporation, Ron Walker, was a big reason why Melbourne was in the conversation and why this race has thrived. Do you have any concerns about Melbourne's ability to hold the race with Bernie being moved out in that manner? No, none at all. What I say is. Bernie created this tier one sport that's up there with the World Cup, with World Soccer and uh, the Olympics. And what the um, Liberty Media has seen, when you pay $8 billion for a sport to have the commercial rights, guess what? You see something very, very valuable in that. And you said the word relationship. The relationships that we have is across so many people and those relationships are strong and business as usual. And guess what? The guys at Formula One, when they come out here from this weekend, the freight guys are coming out. And next weekend, they're setting up the broadcast and logistics and everything else. They're as excited as ever. What about Sydney, though? They've been sniffing around trying to pinch this race. Could that happen? No, they must be getting sore noses. They're going to be sniffing so much. <laughs> it's in Melbourne till 2023. And it came up the other day and said, well, does this open the door for others? Well, I'm sure people are going to think, well, there's new owners. We've got to introduce ourselves and give a business card and say, I'm the major events manager from uh, the Gold Coast. Well, great, but uh, it's going to be here in Melbourne for a long, long time. And we keep putting on the best show and we reckon we're going to get better and better with the new ownership. Sporting capital of the world, this city, as we well know, Andrew Westercott, CEO of the Australian Grand Prix Corporation. Thanks for dropping by on a Saturday morning. Pleasure. It's going to be exciting. Let's see Daniel Ricciardo and Ashui this year. We hope so. Ashui on the podium at Albert Park would be fantastic. In studio with me is a man whose career we've been following pretty closely. We introduced you to his story of his family uh, not so long ago before the UFC rolled into Melbourne for its second time. And this man has taken his UFC career and just run with it. He keeps on winning and winning and winning. And just last week, he rolled a man who historically is one of the biggest names in the sport, Rashad Evans. He's a guy who's got wins against the likes of Chuck Liddell, for goodness sake. You know, he is an amazing MMA fighter with an amazing career. And our man, Dan Kelly, knocked him off. Morning, Dan. Morning. Thank you very much for having me. Mate, what a victory. Yeah, it was awesome. Really, really. It was a close fight, but yeah, awesome, awesome victory and probably the biggest one of my career, definitely. Do you think there's people in the UFC that look at you? I mean, you're, you're a dad, you're about to turn 40, you know, from West Meadows in Melbourne. You know, I don't think they ever expected that you'd be, what, six or seven and one in the UFC. Yeah, six and one. I don't think they expected it at all. I'm pretty sure when I fought in Brisbane a few fights back against uh, Shoeface, the Brazilian, that was uh, I was meant to lose that one. Um, Kamozi probably thought I would have lost, and then definitely I don't think they anyone gave me a chance against Rashad, but it's good. Came away with a win again. Where does the belief come from? Uh, it's just for me. I get very nervous and very anxious before fights, but once the first minute or two over of the fight, it just just happens. I just don't stop and I really enjoy competing and and seeing the other person start and break mentally and, and physically is might sound a little bit weird but it's it's that's 
I enjoy that kind of thing. That's your sport, though. I mean, you know, for a footballer, he sees the other team stopping to compete at the stoppages or not jumping in a marking contest. For you, it's physically seeing the opponent retreat as you start to take control, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's my style is just keep piling on pressure, pressure, pressure until until they crack and keep backing off. And I think that's why I'm winning close fights now as well is because of that forward pressure and, and yeah, not giving them a break at all. Is your jaw made of marble? <laughs> no, my my actual fundamentally, I'm getting better with uh, keeping my chin down and uh, and tucking my head. But uh, yeah, he didn't hit as hard as I thought he would, Rashad. Because you took a so. few shots from Rashad in that yeah. fight, you won by split decision, so he got a few in. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He had some success with his uppercut, um, but yeah, keeping the chin tucked and keeping moving forward, it's pretty hard to get a lot of power unless you're a very good counter puncher off the back foot. So I kept a lot of pressure on it. Yeah, he didn't hit as hard as I thought he would. One of the commentators, I think it was Joe Rogan, had a great line, Dan Kelly is a zombie. And that's because (laughs) you just didn't stop. You know, you took punishment and you just found something within you to keep this fight going and won it. Yeah, it was awesome. I don't know if I was a zombie. Or, but <laughs> I think what he meant is, you know, you just nothing could stop you. You know, it was it was supposed to be a compliment. It's yeah. a bit of a backhanded compliment. It is. <laughs> I, look, I, I work really hard on my striking, and Rashad's a, a known known to have really good boxing, and and I, I was happy to win that fight primarily in a stand-up kind of war. So I was really, really happy. We're talking to Dan Kelly, UFC fighter and Melbourne dad. Fresh off his victory against Rashad Evans. He's the man that isn't supposed to, but just keeps on winning in the UFC. It's an incredible story. How old are you, mate? Uh, 39, 40 at the end of the year. About to turn 40. Yep. And you're going to fight again, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Hope to fight in uh, June and again at the end of the year. So June's New Zealand and there'll be another show in Australia at the end of the year. So I want to fight three times this year. That's a big year. Mate, let's take a step back because you haven't always been a mixed martial arts fighter. You started off as an Olympian. Yeah, so I've uh, I've competed for Australia four times in the Olympics. First one being in Sydney and then last one in London. I also snuck in a Commonwealth Games in wrestling as well. So I've I've been been doing high level sport for a long long time. Cuz it's uh, the judo of course that really brought you to the party as an Olympian, but you don't seem to rely on your judo in your UFC fights. Not as much. I think people are very aware now that, I mean, if given the opportunity in a clinch, I can I can throw a lot. So they, it's a little bit slipperier in a clinch. I'm, I think uh, against Rashad, especially because he's a high level wrestler, the judo and wrestling kind of cancelled each other out. Which, and he was very very clever and tricky with his hips as well to not let me take him down. But they they kind of cancel cancel each other out now, and it's different looks and different uh, body clinching and that kind of stuff that the wrestlers aren't that used to. And you live out in West Meadows, uh, two beautiful boys and, and your wife out that way. Uh, and we've talked about this before, but your son Eric has, has a really rare medical condition that uh, you guys you and your wife have to administer medication something like 20 times a day. Just tell us about that important course for anyone who wants to support it. Yeah, absolutely. So Eric's got a very rare genetic disease called cystinosis. Um, it's amino acid crystals building up all around his body. Uh, we had a little bit of scare earlier this year. His kidney function's gone down quite a bit. So he'll probably need a, a transplant in the next year or two. Uh, we were hoping it was going to be about three or four years. Um, but yeah, any any uh, because the disease is so rare, all of, all the uh, support pretty much is from um, families and, and and foundations funding it. So yeah, anyone who wants to get on board and uh, help cure the disease would be 
Fantastic. Sister Gnosis, chuck it in Google because it is such a rare affliction and one that takes a lot of managing. And uh, we certainly wish you all the best. The other message in there, of course, organ donation. So, so important if uh, if you put yourself down to support a family in that way. And, mate, uh, how do you find time to run a gym? <laughs> um, well, it's better to keep busy, I think. Uh, what's the old saying? If you want something done, ask someone busy. Uh, we, we don't, yeah, we don't really stop. My wife also works full time as well. Um, and the gym in Footscray. Who is an Olympic medalist, if yeah, I remember correctly. Yeah, she's better than me. Commonwealth Games gold medalist, Olympic <laughs> bronze medalist in Sydney, five-time Olympian. So yeah, in she's, judo as well. In judo, yeah. Yep. So she uh, she wins all the battles at home, to be honest. So. <laughs> as you say, right, the housework today will be done by everybody who hasn't won an Olympic medal in this household. <laughs> That's exactly right. So it's, it's good. I mean, I don't, yeah, I'm certainly not at the top of the pecking order at home, which is probably the better that, that way. I do a bit of work on the netball, a Suncorp Super Netball for Channel 9, and yep. Liz Ellis is my co comment a great netball player, Australian Diamond, and her husband was a rugby union player who played for the Waratahs, New South Wales, but never made it for the Wallabies, the Australian team. And, and she does the same thing at home. She says, look, everybody who played for Australia doesn't have to do the washing up. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit harsh, but it's good. It's really good. Um, maybe that's why I'm doing okay in the mixed martial arts, because she'll never be going into that. So. <laughs> How does she handle it? Does she watch? Yeah, she watches. She she gets very very nervous. She just hopes that I come out unscathed every time because it's a, it's a hard sport. But um, I mean it's it's quite financially viable now. So, but yeah, she's always nervous, and it's it's hard. The lead up's hard because well, what people don't see is the ten or twelve weeks leading into a fight where I'm I'm exhausted all the time. We're running the gym. We've got all the family stuff, and you can't just push that aside. The lead up's the hardest bit. The the last little bit, the fight, and then straight after that's that's easy. We're talking to Dan Kelly, UFC fighter and Melbourne dad on Triple M's Weekend Breakfast. Mate, this is a sort of funny question because being an Olympian is a great honour, but do you ever consider what if you'd swapped a bit earlier to the mixed martial arts? Yeah, I have thought about that. I get asked a, a few questions around that a little bit. I I don't have any regrets about my, yeah. my judo career. Um, maybe I could have swapped over a little bit earlier and had a longer run, but... Uh, it's a little bit cliche, but things happen for a reason. And I really, I never quite got there, but I really wanted a, an Olympic medal. Yeah. And it never quite happened. I finished top eight in Athens and that was uh, two matches away from, or one match away from fighting for a medal. But, you know, that's that's what it is. And now I've just, I've got a new lease of life in the uh, UFC. You're making up for it now, exactly, with wins over <laughs> Rashad Evans, really one of the big names of the UFC, and it's just an amazing effort, mate. We love watching how well you're going, and may it long continue as long as you can still get in that octagon. Dan Kelly, thanks for coming in, mate. No, thank you very much for having me, Seb. Cheers. And it is a great thrill to have the 2016 AFL Premiership coach, Luke Beveridge, on the line. Morning, Bevo. Morning, Seb. Mate, a lot of footy issues to talk about, but there is one question I'm sure you have been asked on multiple occasions throughout the preseason, because it's important. What is going on atop Jason Johannesson's head? <laughs> yeah, well, JJ's got an idol of his own, Odell Beckham Jr., who plays over there for uh, the New York Giants, and uh, and he's got the the do going the same as Odell, and if anyone can can pull it off, it might be JJ, I think. <laughs> when you've got a Norm Smith medal to your name, you get a bit of leniency, but when you rock up to pre-season, you've shaved most of your usually dark hair off and you've got a pineapple-style bleach blonde mop coming out the top. I mean, you can tell me that it's some sort of idol of his, but surely he lost a bet in pre-season. <laughs> well, I think we encourage that sort of flamboyance if you can pull it off. And, uh, and JJ's a, 
pretty good looking rooster. He is. So, uh, I think it. I think it suits him. I think it looks good. Um, everyone seems to be pretty supportive. So all he needs to do now is play um, pretty close to his mark, uh, pretty close to his 2016 mark, and we'll uh, we'll let him keep it. He was phenomenal in that grand final. And yes, truth be told, I'm a fan. I think uh, the more characters and personalities we can allow to shine in the AFL industry, the better off we will be. And uh, he, when he gets going, is as exciting as just about any of them. I'm reminded of uh, the Sydney game last year where you know he broke the line at the end of the match to put the Bulldogs over the line. And uh, then you'll be playing Sydney when you raise the premiership flag in a month's time or so. Yeah, that'll be a big day and a special day for our fans. It'll be a challenge for our players to make sure that they focus on the performance ahead of them that day. But, um, yeah, with JJ, you know, he's obviously, he was ice cold under pressure that day. It was, it was a great kick. Um, and I think with his uh, with his appearance, as long as he doesn't go down the Dennis Rodman track and uh, <laughs> take it to the extremes, then we'll all be happy. Bad as I want to be, the Dennis Rodman story. He was a colourful identity, that's for sure. Although, Bebo, he did win, what, four, if not five championships. So if JJ was to do yeah. that for the Bulldogs, you'd be pretty happy. Yeah, um, and he had a great balance, great defensive player, Rodman. And JJ's been able to find that balance in his game too. And there's that attacking flair that he provides, but he's become a, a really strong defender for us. So uh, we're looking for him to uh, really... Um, Show us away from that uh, from that post, and uh, and he's really become a, a leader uh, behind our, uh, our our top tier of leaders this year. Now, mate, once you're done with football, you will make a fantastic radio presenter because you are one of the great storytellers in uh, in international <laughs> sport, but definitely in the AFL industry. And you know, I'm reminded of the night after the grand final where you stood up before the Bulldogs faithful at the club function celebrating the premiership and spoke about a coin that you'd been carrying around. Just remind us what that was about again. Oh, the, uh, oh, the, the 1954 halfpenny was handed to me by Kevin O'Neill, one of their trainers, who um, who got it from one of the Salvation Army um, representatives before the grand final. He just gave him the coin, you know, and sort of, you know, bring back some, some memories. And Kev's not quite old enough for uh, to remember 54, but um, he walked into the rooms before the game and, and shook my hand and said all the best and, in his hand, he had this coin, and I and I took it off him, and I put it in my pocket, and I walked into the room to write some uh, messages up on the board, and uh, and I pulled it out of my pocket and had a closer look at it, and I hadn't turned it over to see the 54, um, so I, I obviously it dawned on me why he'd given it to me, um, and so I, I actually put it in the shoes so I didn't lose it, and then. Yeah, post match, I uh, I could feel it in the shoe, obviously, but I um, I, I pulled it out and uh, and just told the, the story, and I suppose that connection or that link now between the past and the present, fifty four and sixteen, um, you know, is is crystallised, and um, and it's a pretty special thing at our club at the moment, and uh, and that half penny, I've been needing to bring it in because um, uh, Billy, one of our historians, wants to put it in the museum, so uh, that'll end up. There somewhere, but it's uh, yeah, it's a good story, and it's uh, the generosity of people and and what things mean to them, um, and the uh, the emotion behind the game, and the passion we all have for it, is probably represented in that that half penny, I think. And mate, you put the nail on the head there of how you do communicate, because not only do you tell a good story, you do it to give a message to the playing group. 
Does that mean during the off-season, you know, you spend time reading, watching, absorbing and collecting stories to use for season 2017? Yeah, I'm not necessarily with a drive behind um, finding a story that might resonate with us. It, I, I have become a little bit more interested in literature as I've grown older and I try, I try to read um, you know, as many books as time will allow, uh, particularly in the off-season. And sometimes I, I will choose a book based on the, its potential as, uh, as providing some material for the players. But, um, yeah, we've got to be careful. You know, we need a balance and you can't be too over the top with some of those angles that you take. But, uh, yeah, I think to continually test yourself and, and understand what the possibilities might be with storytelling, you, you need to read. And you need uh, movies are good too. You know, watching movies helps as well. Um, so there's a bit of that that goes on with me and, uh, and occasionally you might find a little cold nugget that's, um, that helps you message the players or, or, um, or that relates to our players. And, um, but as I said, it, uh, it's all on balance. If there's any good books over the summer you'd recommend for us? Uh, yeah, it's probably a couple. I, I, uh, I got around to uh, reading uh, Narrow Road to the Deep North, which is um, a, a Richard Flanagan novel, uh, Mark, the great Martin Flanagan, one of my favourite people on this earth, um, who, uh, who writes for The Age, uh, his brother. And, yeah, right. you know, it's, a, it's a great story about, um, about um, World War II and the building of the, uh, of the Burma Railway, and, and it's, it's an iconic sort of Australian tale, mm. and, uh, and entrenched in, in, the, uh, in the words of uh, some family history uh, from the Flanagans and uh, some Tasmanian, got um, a Tasmanian vibe to it. So I'd recommend that one. Actually, I'm trying to go back and read some uh, some books that I should have read, uh, and I got around to reading Lord of the Flies, which I think is a great story. <laughs> one of those sort of metaphors for uh, for life as adults, uh, even though they're kids. Um, so that, I'd recommend that one for anyone who hasn't read it. Fair few uh, people. Have. If you're looking to go on an AFL board, you probably should read Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> a few Very much so. to be learned there. But check that out. Uh, the, uh, what was it? Narrow Road to the Deep North. Richard Flanagan, of course, Martin Flanagan, writes beautifully on the, the sensitivities and romanticism around football and has done for a long time, particularly uh, on Indigenous players. So, yeah, some, some great things to check out. And, mate, there's a great competition coming out this season. Wolf Blast, who's the official wine partner of the AFL, have put it together. And essentially, you can win the opportunity to go to every single 2017 AFL finals match by buying a bottle of Wolf Blast in March and in April. And then you enter it online, wolfblast.com.au. You'll probably be at at least four finals games uh, if things all go well for the Bulldogs. But it's a good opportunity for a fan, isn't it? Oh, it's a great competition. You know, I mean, um, as you said, all you need to do is buy a bottle of Wolf Blast from from any bottle shop or or large retailer and, and go into... Wolfplace, and and enter. I mean, it'd be an amazing tour around the country every final, um, all through September, and um, it'd be just a, a sensational tour. Yeah, we'd rather uh, not have to play four. We'd rather, rather have a week's break somewhere in there. <laughs> but, um, but it, you know, from a fan's perspective, to uh, to do that and to jet set all around the country and get looked after, food and wine and. Um, and Wolfplast's got magnificent, um, different varieties of, of wine. So uh, it's a great comp.
Luke Beveridge, appreciate your time, mate. Uh, one last question. One of the great uh, elements of Bulldogs home games last year was the theme song, Taking Over, written by a group of your old chargers from St. Bede's. You gave a quite famous rendition of it on grand final night. <laughs> Will it be back or is there a new song for a new season? I think the plan is for it to um, to live with some kind of perpetuity. I think it's going to continue to be belted out pre-game this year. And, um, it's only just growing legs. You can actually download it on uh, on iTunes uh, if you go and Google Taking Over. Randy Moonian is the uh, That's right. band. But, uh, the Randy yeah, Moonian. Taking Over, you can download it. And, uh, it's, uh, it's catchy and... Uh, you know, and ultimately, um, it really gelled with what happened last year. So hopefully, that uh, the song can um, can uh, be you know, fertilised and, and grow new legs in uh, in 2017. Look, if you haven't heard it before, it's easy to get a handle on the words too. The Western Bulldogs taking yep. over, taking over is basically how it goes. So uh, you know, anybody can learn it. I might even check that out on iTunes. Luke Beveridge, appreciate your time on Triple M, and good luck for season 2017. Thanks, Sid. Thanks for having me. And that brings us to the end of another Saturday morning. Thank you for being a part of the show. Thanks to Luke Beveridge, Dan Kelly, Kate Maloney, Andrew Westercott for all being on the weekend breakfast this week. I'm off to a Bucks weekend. Cannot wait. Heading down to the beach. My best mate is getting married, so I'm looking forward to that. You have a super weekend, whatever you're getting up to. Enjoy it. And we'll be back to do this all again next week on the weekend breakfast. I'm Seb Costello. News is next for Petter Snowball. Triple M. Petters, the experts in undercar. Noble, Seb Costello, the expert in everything. Triple M's Weekend Breakfast.